All right. G'day and welcome to The Last Place on Earth. This is a podcast where we uh, share with you our view of the world from the west coast of Australia, the far western edge. Uh, my name is Jared Mazza and I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Jesse Noakes. G'day, Jesse. G'day, Jared. Uh, yeah, yet again, finally, finally prepped for launch. Um, can't wait. It's been a long time coming. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's about time that in 2024, a couple of guys like us launched a podcast. Not a moment <laughs> too soon. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And listeners, this is not our first attempt. We've been uh, foiled by issues, technical or otherwise, but I, I have a good feeling about this one. I reckon we're, uh, we're good to go. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Jesse and I, we have kind of worked together over the last few years on various campaigns and other um, projects, I suppose. And uh, I guess we have come across various stories in our, in our time working in campaigns and in some kind of media-related stuff as well, and we thought there was a bit of a, a glaring hole in the West Australian media landscape, and so... Uh, here we are to to try our best to fill it. Um, Jesse, it might be worth us just introducing ourselves and saying who we are and how we've come to be here. So uh, yeah, do you yeah, want to sure. kick us off? Yep, 100%. Um, so, I mean, I was born and raised in WA, but I spent a fair bit of time away. Um, I got back most recently in 2019 um, and started doing a few things fairly swiftly after arriving. I started working at an advocacy centre for Aboriginal people that I'd been connected to for a while before that um, and have been working as a housing advocate for a number of years, both kind of um, on an employee basis and also voluntarily um, in the courts and in the government departments and out on the streets and in the media from time to time. Um, I also not long after getting back to Perth, um, got involved with a group called Extinction Rebellion, climate activists um, who've been sort of uh, making headlines and a bit of noise around the world and helped to get them off the ground here in WA and since then have been involved in other kind of climate campaigns and causes, most recently Disrupt Bar Up Hub. Um, I also, back in 2019, started a bit more seriously doing some freelance writing, uh, journalism at times, reporting on issues and stories that I thought didn't get enough of a look ordinarily. Uh, I've written for a bunch of outlets, Crikey and Saturday Paper and The Guardian and the ABC from time to time, um, talking about not just things like why I ditched my mobile phone for a flip phone and um, why I think it's good to go boxing um, when you need to do some exercise, but also the housing crisis and the climate crisis and other issues, specifically those affecting First Nations people and communities um, who I have you know, worked with in a number of ways for a number of years. But um, campaigning always at the heart of what I do, whether it's activism at one end or journalism at the other, um, I think kind of affecting change, but most importantly using stories from people who really know what they're talking about to kind of to, to shine a light and, and drive some, some public pressure on people who can make things change in a political sense is um, kind of where I, where I see myself fitting in the most. And, Jared, you've obviously kind of got some overlaps there and um, have worked kind of in similar, similar spaces at times, but you started out as a school teacher a few years back. So I'm interested to kind of hear about the sort of the, the evolution from, from the, the teacher's desk to, um, to the, the radio desk. Indeed, yeah. Well, I um, I was also born and raised in West Australia and I have never ventured far. I've always uh, liked to stay fairly close to home. 
Um, I, yeah, began my kind of adult working life as a teacher for five years and I really enjoyed that a lot. I got, got a lot out of it, but two reasons why I packed it in. The first one was I just became incredibly frustrated and disenchanted with the education system um, and by the end I just felt like I was just training kids to do exams. I wasn't able to teach them anything. There was so much kind of interesting kids who were talented, interested in the world, but school was just not the place where they could um, could really explore anything meaningful. So on the one hand, I was frustrated with what I was doing there, but on the other hand, this was kind of, I think, during that 2018, 2019 kind of period of um, a lot of people, I think, including myself, awakening to the full seriousness of the climate crisis. So I was becoming increasingly concerned about that and thought that that was where I wanted to spend my effort. Um, So quit teaching, began doing quite a bit of stuff with Extinction Rebellion. That's how I met you, Jesse. Spent spent a few years doing that. Um, And then ended up up in the Pilbara, which for those who may not know is the kind of mining region of Western Australia, the engine room of the uh, West Australian and even the Australian economy, it's known as. Um, Basically the place where they blow up the mountains and put them in trains and take them to the port and ship them off as iron ore over to China, uh, largely. So, um, yeah, the kind of the minerals and resources hub of the state. Also, of course, a place where... Uh, plenty of First Nations people have been pushed off their land, the place where the Jukun Gorge um, disaster happened, where Rio Tinto exploded the the kind of ancient caves um, some years ago. So a place where definitely I think worlds collide. Um, I first came up here doing some kind of climate campaigning, um, got involved with some cultural heritage campaigning as well and ended up working in the town of Roban in a First Nations media outlet as a producer and have spent the last little bit of time doing that, as well as in my spare time working on Disrupt Burrup Hub, um, working on various other campaigns as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, Shout out to Save That's Online at this point as well, which is a campaign of traditional custodians based up in the Pilbara that um close to both our hearts and have done some pretty extraordinary work in recent months and years. Um, so I think, um, yeah, kind of it's um, say that's online is the purest example to me of how um, Aboriginal people, you know, don't need any any coaching or, or guidance. All, all, all that's required is, is a microphone and a platform and they will tell you in no uncertain terms exactly what they need and what they want for their country. Yeah, um, for sure. Given the opportunity. For sure, yeah. Um, I think it might also be worth pointing out, Jesse, that you and I are uh, co-accused on certain criminal matters. I'm sure people can do their own uh, research on that if they want. It may not be wise for us to say too much. But uh, also... Google me. Google it, exactly. Also worth pointing out that this podcast would have been illegal some months ago because we were barred by the state 
from uh, communicating or talking with each other. So quite correct, quite correct. Se- se- several months of silence, not a not a word exchanged. So we're making making up for lost time now. And if our speech is is that dangerous to the state, then maybe it is worth putting a couple of microphones in front of us and uh, letting us letting us share it far and wide. Let's see. <laughs> Indeed. So I guess how this this podcast is going to work is we're going to be talking about some of the things that we encounter and that we come across in our uh, lines of work, talking a little bit about um, the political situation, some of the issues that are, are faced here in Western Australia. I mean, there's a state election coming up in March 2023, so... Um, you know, I'm sure the political conversation will will heat up, and of course, sorry, March 2025, not three, <laughs> um, and a federal election likely around the same time as well. So the kind of the the interplay of those two will be interesting um, to observe, and I think um, you know the the perspective from out west will be increasingly important as the two of those kind of overlap and intertwine as we get closer and closer exactly. to election day. Exactly. I mean, they're saying that this year is the great year of the test of democracy. These are uh, elections all around the world that's right there's another one too yeah there's another one coming up and i think a few others too but uh in true western australian style we're just a a little bit behind but we'll we'll get there Uh, we'll get get over the line like Stephen bradbury or otherwise we will (laughs) we'll stumble over that finish line when we're when we're ready exactly so um yeah i don't know anything you want to add about what we're doing here and what the purpose of this enterprise is no, I think, I mean, I think you've covered it pretty well. Um, it's pretty clear that, you know, um, a lot of shit goes down in WA that many people never hear about. Um, some of it probably for good reason. It's not that interesting a lot of the time, um, but some very important stuff happens out here. And I think a lot of the kind of the uh, core storylines and narratives and threads affecting the country as a whole are often most pronounced and most acute here in Western Australia, um, if only there were the ways to, you know, to, to share that and to, to, to show exactly what's going on just a little beneath the surface. Things can seem pretty rosy and pretty good when it's, you know, a summer's day down at the beach, but when it's 43 degrees in Perth or in Caratha or even where I am right now, uh, a few hours south of Perth, down at Redgate, um, you know, things start to heat up. And I think kind of just as the dial continually gets turned up on the various crises that are kind of continuing to, to affect everyone. Um, WA is often a lens um, overlooked, but possibly with a bit of kind of a bit of um, unpacking, one that actually affords quite an interesting and um, original way of kind of assessing things, not just in WA, but also across Australia and potentially around the world. As we say, we head into, you know, a year that promises to be a test of democracy and possibly a few other things. So I think now is as good a time as any um, in true WA style, a few years behind, you know, most other places to to launch um, a podcast and a platform to, to have a look at it all and to kind of watch it as it unfolds. Well, let's talk a little bit firstly about housing because, you know, as you've mentioned, this is something that you've been very closely involved with over the years and, you know, myself probably to a lesser degree, but still it's something that I've been interested in um, for a while. I mean, maybe a good place to start is there was quite an impressive series in The Guardian last week uh, published on the life expectancy gap um, between Australians who are housed and Australians who are homeless. And uh, 
I believe that you kind of uh, had a bit of involvement in that, Jesse. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 it was certainly framed um, as sort of a focus on the life expectancy gap. I think um, the, the sort of the core story for me is just about the fact that so many people are dying on the streets due to homelessness, lack of stable, affordable, secure housing, um, in some cases because they've been evicted from the kind of the, the last line of defence for many people from homelessness, public housing, in some cases for no good reason at all. Um, and a number of the families that I've worked with over the years, many of whom have experienced chronic homelessness, some of whom have been repeatedly evicted from public housing, often, again, for no real reason to speak of. Um, uh, a few of those were able to, to, you know, to summon up the uh, extraordinary courage and resilience and resolve to share parts of their very traumatic story with The Guardian. Um, they kind of they ran over a number of stories last week. Um, also featured prominently was um, the pioneering research of someone I've worked very closely with in recent years, Professor Lisa Wood, who's kind of led the way um, in Australia in terms of actually trying to put some numbers around the scale of this often pretty hidden crisis. And I think the kind of The Guardian series, which was a really great kind of empathetic um, uh, sensitively handled piece of investigative work by Christopher Naus, their chief investigations reporter, sort of illustrated and unpacked that better than anywhere I've seen previously. It's been it's been a story I've been working on for a few years, um, just because of the scale of the crisis that I've kind of been immersed in, working firsthand with Aboriginal people um, on the streets in Perth and seeing kind of the toll that homelessness takes. Um, and the way that evictions from public housing kind of feed into that. But I think to see it kind of lit up on a national scale, illustrated so beautifully with some really sort of beautiful photography as well at times and some case studies from around the country, but especially from Western Australia, and to get a response from the Federal Housing and Homelessness Minister kind of acknowledging what the WA government's certainly never been in any hurry to do, which is to acknowledge how unacceptable this crisis is, um, is a first step, whether, you know, political action follows is uh, is a, a separate question, but I think it was really kind of satisfying to finally join the dots between um, people passing away in, you know, acute desperation on the streets and the kind of the deeper causes of that, which too often is, is state government policy, which obviously they have every capacity to, to alter and to improve if there was any political will or appetite to do so. And hopefully the kind of stories we saw last, last week are, are, are you know, a first step on the road to, to delivering some of that political will. So this this issue of the kind of uh, the no-fault evictions or the forced evictions seems to be something that came out of that as a problem both here in Western Australia but also it seems in other parts of the country as well. But, um, you know, I know you've seen a number of these up close how how do these evictions actually work? Like when we're talking about these no-fault evictions, what are some of the experiences that you, you've you've seen, and how does it how does it play out? I guess. Um, well, I think yeah. Firstly, it should be pointed out that the Guardian series last week, which we can maybe chuck something in show notes um, mm. about, sort of with, with with some links to the series that they've done, which was titled "Out in the Cold," um, did look at sort of deaths due to homelessness around the country. It investigated. Uh, little over 600 cases that have been brought before a coroner and one of the kind of the core aspects of the story is that unlike deaths in custody or other deaths that the state does take some degree of responsibility for, deaths due to homelessness are not reported to the coroner as a mandatory requirement and so too many of them kind of never get 
um, revealed at all and people die in, you know, in silence on the margins of society. And I think what was really noteworthy about the way The Guardian handled it was that a few of those kind of, a few of those people were finally kind of given the, um, the attention they deserve and their lives were actually kind of, were, were, you know, made, made visible in a way they possibly hadn't been in life or previously in death. Um, as far as the evictions go, I mean, I can probably kind of illustrate it with, with just some, some recent examples. I was in court in Bunbury, south of Perth, last week for, um, for an eviction from public housing facing a, a First Nations family who I've known for a number of years. I first got to know them uh, in the early weeks of the pandemic when while the rest of the state and the country and the world were in lockdown, um, Shara and her kids were summarily evicted from their previous public housing place in Perth out onto the streets um, one very chilly autumn morning in April 2020. Um, I only got word of it about an hour before it happened. I turned up with a Channel 9 camera crew while the bailiff and the cops were there changing the locks and boarding up the windows and Shara and the kids and the dogs were in a van that night and for many months afterwards. Um, Shara then got public housing again down south. Um, she's now facing eviction a second time. Um, the housing authority have informed me and informed Shara that there have been a number of complaints from neighbours. They've never been tested in court. There's never been any evidence brought um, in relation to that up until this point. Nonetheless, the Housing Authority issued her initially with a no-grounds termination notice, which is to say that she's given notice that at the end of the fixed-term tenancy that they've placed her on, they're not going to renew it. What that means is that no evidence or witnesses or trial ever takes place. Shara doesn't get a chance to respond to any complaints against her. She's, for what it's worth, um, been paying rent the whole time she's been living there. And the place looks great. And I was there picking her up for court last week and um, it's picture perfect almost. I took some pictures actually to show the magistrate if that was needed. Um, but what happens in effect is when the case, in, in the case of a fixed-term tenancy or a no-grounds eviction, it gets before a magistrate. As long as the paperwork's in order, the notice has been given in the requisite time frame, it's sort of it's a rubber stamp. The magistrate's got no choice but to, but to evict. And the housing authority and the minister responsible for homelessness and housing in WA continue to insist publicly that an eviction will only take place if a breach of the tenancy has happened and that hasn't been remedied. In the case of these no-grounds evictions, it's simply not true. And that was kind of the, the point I was trying to make in the final story The Guardian ran last week, which focused on a number of suicides that took place following previous no-grounds evictions. So the kind of the consequences and the impacts can be really incredibly severe right up to the point that, that a number of people have died. Mm. And um, I think it's, you know, there's a fundamental issue of natural justice here. And when we're talking about the most vulnerable families in the state, in many cases, it seems wrong that the government are the ones who are turning them out onto the streets where um, where so many of them are dying. Mm. So I've done a little bit of reporting on some of these evictions and um, what, the, what the department has said, you know, when they've been approached for comment is that it's in the hands of the magistrate to make these decisions on these these evictions but if, if what if i'm hearing you correctly that is a, a kind of misrepresentation right that the magistrate actually it's it's, it's it's true in many cases and the department is fully able to pursue what's known as a four cause eviction for public housing tenants who they believe are not you know not living up to their expectations for whatever reason whether that's because they're not paying their rent whether it's because they're letting the property fall into disrepair whether it's because they say there've been complaints from neighbors about antisocial behaviour at the property, the department's got many um, provisions of the legislation under which it can evict people by providing some evidence and convincing a magistrate that the tenant has not been doing what they're supposed to and has not changed the behaviour despite opportunities to do so. The issue that we have with one specific 
provision of the Act, which the Department continues to rely on, the use of fixed-term tenancies, which do not require any evidence of a breach or otherwise they simply allow the Department to terminate the tenancy if they wish at the end of that fixed-term period. There's no opportunity for the tenant to defend themselves, to respond to any allegations of disruptive behaviour, to agree to a payment plan for the rental arrears, to you know make commitments to improve property standards. They don't get that chance. The Department just says, no, nah, you're done, you're out of here, we don't want you here anymore, and the magistrate has no choice but to wade it through because that's how the legislation's set up. So I think one thing the campaigners, including myself, have been calling for for a number of years is for a rewrite of that legislation. The government declined to do so when they announced some changes to the Act last year, which I believe are going to go before Parliament later this month. Um, But when it comes to public housing especially, it's really the last line of defence for many families. The private rental market is fucked for everyone right now. Like It's prohibitively difficult and expensive to get into it. And for many of these First Nations families... You know, they really don't stand a chance in hell mm. when they're lining up with 100 other people for a rental inspection at a private property. So public housing really is a basic safety net that the state can provide people and to deprive them of that with no chance for them to, you know, to defend themselves or have a fair hearing in court, I think is, you know, prima facie, pretty unfair, mm. pretty unjust mm. and pretty bad public policy. And I guess this question around, you know, they're, they're very quick to say, oh, you know, there's been complaints. Um, including in these instances where they're not providing grounds, uh, there's been complaints from neighbours and whatnot, and you, you kind of see that narrative sometimes in the media as well of like, well, you know, do you want to live next to these people? Do you want to live next mm. to this? But, I mean, you know, I think there's the obvious point there that, okay, there may be some issues, but is evicting children into homelessness really the the kind of the best way to deal with those issues or is it creating yeah. more extensive issues? So I guess... It's kind of something that you confront quite a lot though, right? So I guess how do you confront that when people say, well, I don't want to live next to that? How do you... How do you I mean, I th- I th- yeah, I think there are probably two, two immediate responses that come to mind. The first is the one that you've just kind of pointed to, which is that like people have got to live somewhere. Mm. Just because you say you can't live in this house next to these neighbours anymore doesn't mean they disappear. Mm. The only way in which people disappear is if they die. Mm. And so the, the kind of the alternatives are other, either the people... The families, the children who are being evicted go and live somewhere else in much more overcrowded accommodation, putting pressure on other tenancies and other neighbours and other communities, or they go out onto the streets. And, you know, the consequences of that are often that kids no longer go to school, that they end up in youth detention, that they're removed from their parents, that they develop health and mental health issues, and often that leads to adult incarceration, um, you know, and the, the cycle of trauma and abuse and deprivation just kind of compounds and perpetuates, at least when they're in a home, it's kind of bounded by four walls and a roof and somewhere safe to sleep at night. If you deprive them of that, you know, it only makes everything worse to the point at which, you know, when worse comes to worse, often they die, mm. you know, as adults, but even children I've known have, have you know, have lost their lives as a result of, of homelessness. Um, there were stories late last year about two babies who died within weeks of each other, one in Geraldton and one in Perth. I knew both of those families well. Um, and I think kind of when you put it barely and bluntly like that, the two alternatives to kind of to allowing a family to to remain safely housed are to either evict them, whereby the issues just get worse and compound for the rest of the community and for generations to come, or they die. And I think kind of my my colleague and mentor Betsy Buchanan put it really well at the end of the the Final Guardian story last week, which is to say that you know for all the allegations the department alleges, all of them untested, I might add, does it really justify people, children taking their lives in front of public housing properties they've just been evicted from? Um, she said, 
she doesn't think there's anything that could justify that, and I'm kind of inclined to agree. And I suspect probably when push comes to shove, most people would be inclined to agree, even if they don't particularly like, you know, having noisy neighbours. Mm. Just in terms of the issue of social housing, I mean, I know that certainly up here in the Pilbara region there is, you know, a severe, uh, severe shortage of public housing, long waiting times, and that is really exacerbated by the fact that there's so much empty social housing sitting around. I think it's something like 12%. Uh, and the figures mm. that the, the state government uh, provided last year are uh, sitting there empty. And certainly I see it in Robin, driving around Robin, you know, I think it would probably be higher than that. Um, it would be good to one day go and count them, I guess. But um, And it's a complaint. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the families themselves who are facing homelessness or are, are literally homeless are all too aware of that. It's a, it's a, you know, a call I often get from people saying, you know, there's places boarded up. Um, they've been boarded up for, for months or years right next door. There was a story we got on the front page of the West Australian, the local paper last year, of um, a couple, an Aboriginal couple down in um, Kalgoorlie who were sleeping in a tent directly on the doorstep of a row of boarded up public housing. And I think, you know, that was a, a kind of acute illustration of, of that phenomenon. And I think, again, that's something that kind of most average people can kind of connect with. Like when you've got... Uh, you know, a universally recognised housing crisis that's clearly kind of not getting any better and probably getting, you know, progressively worse, to have 2,000 or thereabouts public houses unoccupied sitting there empty across the state is just kind of, you know, it's government waste at its worst mm. in many respects, especially when the consequences, as the Guardian reports last week showed, are so, are so dire and so deadly. Mm. Um, I think there's really no excuse for having kind of 5% of public houses across the state unoccupied, and as you say, in, in some regions such as the Pilbara, such as the Midwest, such as the Goldfields, up to 15% of public houses unoccupied just kind of doesn't pass the pub test. Mm. And, I mean, the thing that the Housing Minister said in response is, well, oh, you know, it's hard to get labour, it's hard to get materials in these regions, but, I mean... There's no problem getting these mining camps up in an instant, you know, like that's they seem to almost overnight be able to erect these mining FIFO camps and they seem to certainly be able to erect, erect these um, mining projects. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a question of priorities, I suppose, as, as all of these things are, yeah. Yeah, and I think kind of that's the good thing about the Guardian series last week and about, you know, the story on the front of the West last year and the other one about the, the babies tragically dying. Like, no, these are good stories, but the only good thing to come out of them is that it turns up the heat on the government and that's especially kind of, you know, when it comes to something as like the, the pointiest end of all is babies dying while homeless and the headline in the paper, which I've still got sitting on my desk at home, um, is you know, was homeless babies dying, pretty fucking bare and graphic and to the point, but kind of communicates the issue. And then the subhead, I think, was something like, pressure rises on government, and so it should, but only because places like the West Australian, for all their faults in other areas, are willing to run those stories. Mm. And um, I think, you know, that's kind of part of the point here is that with some stories out West, it's easy to, you know, to get attention and hopefully get a bit more political pressure. Um, And then there are others that no one wants to touch at all. And I suppose kind of at least the kind of the one thing we've got, I've got going for myself as a housing campaigner is that the stories are very immediate, very acute, and, you know, very tragic mm. and traumatic. And while not everyone is in a position to be able to tell their side of those stories, those that are and that do have that strength and that stability, they can really kind of, I think, make a pretty powerful difference and a pretty powerful case for change because it just it, in, in, in what world is it acceptable for a, a state as rich as ours with so much of it derived from the communities such as the ones that you, you live in and work with, um, whether in Pilbara or in Perth, um, you know, 
the the riches this state relies on are drawn from out of these communities, and, and so little of it's invested back that that you know. First Nations people are dying homeless on the streets in 2024. I don't think anyone would kind of would see that as politically palatable. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of talking about putting this, I guess, into the political agenda and getting public pressure and attention on it, I mean, you've used various methods to do that uh, over the years. Some of them, I'd say, are quite quite innovative. Um, mm. But uh, there was something else in the Guardian this week which I was quite interested in, which was a. Rally, uh, Jonathan Sriranganathan in Brisbane, who's a Greens candidate mm. for Lord Mayor, organised a rally um, to stop it, to stop an eviction uh, without grounds eviction. I think it was actually from a private house rather than a public house, but um, yeah, right. but it looked like there were twenty, thirty people there with banners in in the mm. in the front yard, and I thought it was pretty inspiring and pretty cool. And I kind of thought, wow, you know, I think we could get something like that going here for sure. It, yeah, it looked great, um, and it looked like it was kind of one of the one of the top red stories on the Guardian that day. So I think it connected with a lot of people. Um, I mean, you're very kind to credit me with some innovative and original um, interventions in the the homelessness debate. Previously, I've got to say it's all copied from elsewhere. Um, I think probably the most kind of high profile of those were a couple of homeless camps that um, emerged that I sort of you know helped facilitate in Perth and in Frio a few years back in the run up to the previous state election, which certainly kind of turned up the dial and, and got the stories. Um, very much on the political agenda and on the radar and made a pretty kind of inconvenient spectacle for the government to, to walk around on their on their way to that election, which they obviously romped home in ultimately. Um, but, I mean, that was entirely inspired by, um, by a similar camp that emerged in Martin Place in Sydney a few years prior where a guy called Lance Priestley set up a, a homeless camp and kitchen that kind of sustained hundreds of people over a number of months. And, um, and Lance, who um, has passed away now, sadly, rest in peace, was um, was a source of great wisdom and advice and guidance to me at times during the kind of, during the ferment of, of those camps in 2020, during the height of the pandemic here. So, I mean, far be it for me to say what may or may not emerge in WA going forwards, but we are running into another state election. Possibly it's time to kind of, to, to you know, dust off the old playbook and see what other states are trying and see whether the same thing might work here to sort of to drive some attention, as you say. But yeah, I mean Brisbane's certainly been been doing that kind of thing well for a while. And John Three himself has um there's a previous photo that's done the rounds of him kind of delocked by the neck to to the flywire front door of a public housing property in Brisbane to oppose a previous eviction. And I understand that certainly delayed it if it didn't prevent it entirely. So I think um yeah you know there's many ways to to skin a cat. And to get a story on the front page and certainly kind of, um, you know, locking yourself to things can often slow down the, um, the political process and sometimes sometimes subvert it entirely perhaps. Mm, indeed, yeah. And also I reckon quite a quite a cool way to uh, run a, a campaign to be Lord Mayor. <laughs> for, for sure, for sure. Yeah, certainly. And certainly keeps his, his face in the... Um, in the headlines as well, which which is, is what you need to do when you're Lord Mayor. There, are, you know, the Lord Mayor of Perth has um, a newspaper that he effectively co-owns at his beck and call to do that. Writes a column for it, and um, is you know the, the the de facto son of the proprietor. So, in the absence of that, I reckon um, running the protest in pursuit of a very important cause is a decent way to campaign as well. Indeed, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I guess there's another issue which has been pretty live in western australia over the last well few months really um but especially over the last couple of weeks which is the heat 
Um, and I think that, you know, it's obviously an issue that intersects with housing because um, it's pretty difficult to be someone without housing yeah. if you're if it's so fucking hot, basically. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's so hot down south even that I've, I've had to flee further down south. I've, I've, you know, barely spent a night in Perth the past couple of weeks. Um, I'm currently a few hours south where even, even here over the weekend it was fucking stinking hot but but up north i can only imagine you know where your base jared and caratha and Royburn, it's um it's doubtless even worse turned up to 11 and i you know i saw on tiktok you were out at um the Royburn prison recently where where notoriously there's no aircon mm. um which is pretty hard to fathom in the heat of a pilbara a pilbara summer so um yeah i can only imagine what it's like for crew up there yeah i mean it's yeah it's been incredibly hot it was 45 plus yesterday here um, and, you know, consistently above 40. And, yeah, as you say, I cruised down by the prison yesterday and uh, got a bit of footage out there in the heat. And I uh, must admit it's uh, been kind of controversial on TikTok. There's been fed with pushback to that. But, I mean, I think that's how the mm. algorithm works, right? Well, I haven't actually had, I haven't had a chance to flick through it yet. Uh, a few other things on the table this morning. What was the kind of the, the nature of the, the pushback? Uh, what was people's problems? It was largely... People saying, oh, you know, who cares? These people have committed crimes. They're not here for a holiday. They're not here for for luxuries, whatever, which, I mean, I think, to be fair, I may have walked into it a little bit because I did, I think, what's in a very easy trap for um, people to fall into when they're kind of campaigning on progressive causes and perhaps all causes, which is not fully explaining why something is a problem. You know, it's easy for me to say it's hot, there's no air con, that's a human rights violation but I think perhaps didn't quite connect the dots oh, in there as much as possible. It's, uh, difficult to do sometimes in a 60-minute grab for TikTok, I suppose, but um, perhaps um, a uh, podcast provides more of a platform for fully, <laughs> for fully unpacking an issue. So here's your chance. What's the other? Why, sh- why, why, should, why should prisoners in the Pilbara um, deserve aircon? <laughs> well, thank you for the asking. same way that the Pilbara prison guards do because sh- surely they're used to it, haven't they? Been living up there, you know, their whole lives. Surely everyone knows it's, it's hot up there. What, what are they doing, getting themselves into trouble in the Pilbara if they don't want to sweat through another summer? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's like all of these issues, right? I think that they're, they're so interconnected. So we've obviously got an incarceration crisis, especially amongst First Nations people, over-representation in the criminal justice system. I believe it's about 80% of inmates or more in that prison are First Nations people. Um, So there's that for a starter, that there are all these systemic factors, which means that First Nations people are getting locked up uh, unfairly and things like housing and whatever feed into that. I mean, the other thing is it's obviously way fucking hotter than it's ever been before, right? We've just had the hottest year on record. Um, and, you know, that's only increasing and going to increase. And, yeah. you know, as the Aboriginal legal services have said, like there's a serious risk that people are going to die because they're in cells where it can so get really hot. Um, I thought the government came out like over a year ago, but I remember it because I was up there at the time when the ABC were reporting on it and then I got a call from one of them, one of the reporters saying, oh, it turns out they've actually just announced they're going to install aircon yeah. after kind of, you know, a series of stories. So how has it still not happened? Like, how hard is it to chuck a few reverse cycle aircons yeah. into a prison block? Well, you've got to wonder, right? So that was that was late 2022, I think November 2022, that that announcement was made. So, you know, we've had two, two summers since then. Um I know that the tender process opened towards the end of last year and it mm. was meant to finish early January. Uh, about two weeks ago, 
the department said that it was still ongoing. So I suspect they haven't been able to find someone to do the work. Um, but I mean, again, it's a matter of priorities. You know, it's a matter of how hard they're trying. They've also but seen how many, how, how many how many mining camps have been kind of constructed or expanded over the course of the last eighteen months? Like they're yeah. all going to be air conditioned. Exactly. Surely you can. I mean, they've also said in the past that there's some kind of technical setup in the prison that makes it difficult or whatever, but, like, it can't be that fucking hard, right? Like, it's, it's, it just cannot well, be Well, I mean, <laughs> all, all, the, all the Aboriginal families I know have got bloody jerry-rigged air cons, you know, <laughs> sticking out the sides of their public housing places, which are no better designed for air conditioning yeah. or more modern than the Roman prison, yeah. I can assure you. Like, most of those places are, you know, 50 or 100 years old themselves and you still find solutions to keep it cool. Yeah. Uh, look, it's it's obviously at the bottom of the list. They've committed the funding, perhaps to get some people off their back, because it was kind yeah. of escalating as a as a political cause. They've given the funding out, but it could be another it could be another summer now without it again. Mm. And I mean, I think the other kind of point to make is that um, an hours down the road is uh, Woodside's big hub gas development, which is. You know, the kind of thing that's exacerbating this extreme weather and this extreme heat, that's getting subsidised yeah. by government, state and federal, that's being supported by government. It's also coming at the expense of First Nations heritage. So some of the same families who have family members in the prison, um, you know, they they have strong connections to the area which is which is being desecrated by that development. Um, Someone should do something about that development. <laughs> is, is, is anyone onto that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know, but uh, yeah. I'll let you know if I hear anything. Um, yeah. Fits and starts. But um, mm. anyway, I mean, I guess like that's all of this speaks to, I think, how interconnected all this is in WA, but also it sometimes seems like Western Australia is so far away or cut off or isolated from the rest of the world, and that is the kind of the common narrative that you hear, right? The most isolated capital city in the world. We kind of live in our own bubble, whatever. The COVID era probably didn't help that, where we were very much insulated from everything. But at the end of the day, that gas is being exported and is being burned overseas and is making a multinational company a lot of money. It's exacerbating this extreme heat. It's t- taking up these public resources, which could be put into things like housing, things like addressing incarceration, and it's this mm. big kind of interconnected picture. Um, and for people like us in Western Australia, it's easy to, to feel like you have a great life. You know, everything's good and easy. Um, certainly, I think that that's kind of how I, for a lot of time, thought that this was a great place. You know, things were things were easy. We were lucky, and in some ways, you know, you and I definitely are. But um, Oh, and it, it is. It's you know, it's it's hard to argue when you can you know when the beach is five or fifteen minutes away, and you can you know drop in for a, a dip after work or before work. Um, but you know the things that you're working on during the day often, um, you know, for people like us, uh, you know, it's not too many steps to kind of to get to communities that are um, in you know fairly constant crisis. And I think it's kind of it's it's a foretaste of, of what's going to expand and evolve more and more for more of us as the summers get hotter and the responses from government often kind of get get slower or more punitive, as the case may be. And as you say, if the subsidies keep coming for big business to keep doing what it's doing, um, it's hard to see how much is going to change mm-hmm. because the focus is always on propping up the big end of town um, and the people from whom the wealth and everything else is extracted often, um, often get crumbs, if that, to show for it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think there's a whole other broad set of questions here about well, what you know, what do we do about it? And you know, you and I have both been, I think, uh, trying to get 
you know, big mass uh, direct action campaigns going around the climate crisis and around this extreme heat. Mm-hmm. That's not really quite where we're at at the moment. I think uh, you and I have talked about this a fair bit, but, you know, we kind of thought at the beginning of the summer, given the bushfire predictions and all the rest, that we might be kind of in a period where there was going to be a lot of uh, mass consciousness raising around the climate emergency. I think, um, I mean, the immediacy of something like, you know, the homelessness crisis with people dying on the streets or more kind of further afield perhaps, but, but equally immediately, um, Gazans being, you know, being bombed in the in the camps and the cages that they're trapped in um, is obviously something that's kind of going to concentrate attention in a much more urgent um, way and has done. Mm. Um, you know, whether that's a few dozen people rallying outside a, a home that's, you know, someone's about to be evicted from or whether it's, you know, blockading ships in ports to try and stop them supplying um, guns or ammunition or finances to Israel to keep, you know, to keep decimating the the Palestinians, um, it's it's completely natural and easy to understand why people are ready to, to roll out and to mobilise to kind of to you know to oppose to oppose those um, monstrosities and those crises. Whereas obviously the climate crisis is is more gradual and nebulous and kind of hard to hard to pick and predict. As you say, we thought there might be a kind of a bushfire crisis right across the country. We've seen um, smidgens of it here in Perth and, you know, to say smidgens kind of might sort of might dismiss and minimise the, the, the life that was lost down in Esperance and the dozens of homes that have been lost across Perth over the past couple of months. But certainly it doesn't seem to have been enough to kind of to shift the dial and to get people really kind of really talking and, and moving on this issue. We'll, we'll see what happens. There's a kind of a little rally at Parliament tomorrow. Uh, there's another rally at Woodside next week, but it's certainly it's, it's unlikely to be kind of thousands and tens of thousands of people, which is probably ultimately what's needed to really kind of shift the dial in a political sense on this, hence why you and I have kind of have been um, known to um, become embroiled in, in controversy and, um, you know, engage in some stunts over the years because it's um, it's a way to shift the needle without necessarily needing that kind of that, that popular consciousness to, to lift to the degree that, you know, thus far has proven pretty difficult. Mm. Not, not impossible, it's happened before, mm. um, but... Certainly, since the pandemic, it's been it's been a lot quieter mm-hmm. around here. Indeed. Well, look, I think that went pretty well. I think that was pretty good. I reckon we should maybe give it another crack. Do it again sometime. Seventh time, lucky. Yeah. Let's, um, <laughs> let's 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 do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think uh, that that was that was good. That was fun. We were kind of on home turf for a lot of it, and hopefully, kind of as as this thing, you know, rolls out and evolves, we can uh, we can get other people, mm. um, you know into the into the picture as well and I would certainly love to see a bit more sort of um, freeform and possibly long-form investigative um, work on some of the issues that we're both you know connected to and have access to and hopefully we can get some kind of some more marginalized voices um, in the mix as well as we go forward but yeah no, I think um, I think it's a, a solid start and hopefully um, you know people have learned a thing or two about some of the stuff we know we know most about yeah yeah and yeah as you say hopefully we can use this to do i guess a bit of kind of uh on the ground reporting um for this platform as as time goes on and uh hopefully we can also embroil ourselves in a few more controversies i've I've been uh wanting to scratch that itch but uh maybe maybe we can do it here instead of doing it in the the first watch house a long 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 dry summer but uh, (laughs) one way or another yeah, there's there's only one reliable way for people to to end up in the headlines, and that is by doing something extreme. 
So, um, yeah, stay, stay tuned, I suppose. And I guess the other thing is that um, we haven't quite sorted out yet, but maybe by the time we put this up, we sort out a way for people to subscribe and to support us. I mean, eventually the plan is just for to, to offer some kind of uh, premium content or whatever. So we'd appreciate some support at getting this project off the ground if people are, are able to, yeah. Let's see how we go. Hopefully it can um, cover some of the legal fees we accrue along the way as well. Yes, exactly. Always good to have uh, a bit of a stash. Uh, all right. Let's, and a safe uh, house. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This has been The Last Place on Earth. Thanks very much and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy. See you later.